1: This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr,
2: I'm Scarlett Foo.
1: Coming up today, a look at the man building a soccer empire. He's gone from football fan, or football fan, wherever you want to go, to one of the sport's biggest investors in just one year. And now he's looking to change the entire landscape of the sport. You yeah, know, I do think
0: football's sort of broken by money. I don't say that in like a political way. It's just a reality. You've got leagues in different parts of the world where there are three strong teams, two strong teams, and there's everybody else. You've got long seasons where the result is known far in advance. Like which of the top three teams is going to win this year? You know, what fun is that?
2: That is the voice of John Texter. Just a year ago, he was a mere fan of soccer or football. Now he owns clubs from London to Rio and he's looking for more. Bloomberg's David Hellier recently spoke to John Texter about his plans and he joins us now for some insight on that conversation and where exactly this soccer empire may be headed. David, welcome to the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. Tell us a little bit about what his portfolio looks like. How many soccer clubs does he own?
3: Um, well, John Texter, he's got four interests, four football teams, uh, that he's involved in. He started off with a, with an interesting team in South London, Crystal Palace. They've never won any major trophies, but they've got a kind of, um, hipster image, Premier League, uh, so they're in the big league. And a year ago, um, he bought a stake in Crystal Palace for around a hundred million dollars. He then followed that up by, Buying a team in Belgium, RWD Molenbeek, which was a lot. It was a small investment in terms of money, but probably quite a bit in terms of uh, time, because every team does take up um, an owner's time. And then he he, he went further, afield to Brazil which is a great place for players, but it's a bit of a mess financially. And he bought one of the historical clubs there, Botafogo, and that was a huge commitment because including debts, which he takes on to pay back, it's around 300 million. And then he surprised everybody, but particularly the French media by taking over Olympique uh, Lyonnais, uh, when everyone assumed it was going to be another buyer. Uh, was in the front running, but Texter won won the auction in the end. So he's got four, um, I mean, really, really, you know, fast-paced uh, acquisitions. What
1: amazes me, this isn't like, okay, I got a lifelong plan. He just started this 12 months ago, and he went from football fan to now being one of the sport's biggest investors. That little time frame amazes me.
3: Yeah, it's both amazing and potentially concerning because he doesn't appear to have anybody, you know, in in his locker room uh, that can head the the function of putting those teams together. So he's doing a lot of this himself. He did have an executive um, who was heading up the Olympic Lyonnais deal, uh, Tom Glick, but he's now gone to Chelsea. Uh, football club. So he's lost him. Sometimes I'm thinking to myself, you know, how's he got the time to do all this? It's, it's incredible. But so it's, it's very quick. But on the other hand, I think his interest in football has been uh, several years old now. He he um, Before all this, he, he ran a big academy in Florida, which is a different scale, but he's always been very interested. Not always, but yeah. for the last few years, he's been very interested in football and the development of players.
2: Yeah, but American soccer and global football are two totally different things. What is the logic behind him amassing all these stakes in these different football clubs? I mean, what kind of synergies does he envision owning these different football clubs would create?
3: Um, he's he's kind of in doing this. He's he's following a bit of a trend that um, there's a number of Florida-based financiers that I've written about um, for Bloomberg have been doing the same. And what what they what they sort of argue is that uh, if you buy one football club um, in Europe, you are hostage to fortune. They could be relegated. Um, they could you know all their players might leave. It's a very volatile situation. So if you buy uh, three or four football clubs is what they argue. Uh, number one, you don't have so much volatility because if one is doing badly, another one might be doing well. The second thing is that um, you can trade players through through the group. So you might have an inexperienced player that can play for one team in the group or for their reserve team, or you might have a very experienced player that you need at another part of the group. And um, Texter, you know, thinks this is a very um, efficient way of developing players. And so do the other groups that do this. Um, so this I mean, is it,
2: diversification and asset swaps.
3: Yep, yep. Um, and I mean, there, there are a couple of other ways that in, in which this model could be efficient and uh, uh, a lot of the owners they talk about the, um, uh, their, their use of data analytics to um, do all things from identify players to help with injuries or to decide whether players are too injury prone to take on. They use a lot of data. It's a very, you know, more sophisticated way of analyzing uh, football teams, which obviously uh, Billy Bean in, in America, you know, was the was probably the originator of this theory. Um, so that and if you're using data for the whole group, um, I guess that could be more efficient. It's an economy of scale. Yeah. Uh, you maybe have all your data people in one location. Uh, swapping information and uh, and that kind of thing. And the other the, the other uh, arm of this group operation is is uh, sponsorship. So you know you might get a sponsor that that goes across all four teams rather than just one team. You might even be able to do deals with you know broadcast rights, kit suppliers, you know all that kind of thing.
1: Speaking of broadcast rights, he gets it because he was once the executive chairman of Fubo TV, and he helped put together one of the high profile deals, uh, a 2020 merger of st- the streaming platform. It, he gets it. This is going to be the future. If we're going to watch anything now on so-called TV, it's not going to be cable necessarily anymore. It's going to be streaming.
3: Yeah, he's, he, he's very knowledgeable in, in, in broadcast. The only thing I, I'd caution against here is that if you take his position at Leon, Leon a, he's one of 20 uh, owners, you know, he has a limited say, but, but if he can, if he can kind of influence other owners, uh, to see his way of thinking, uh, to take them down a particular road, he's obviously experienced in that field.
2: So, David, you mentioned how Texter is one of the Florida financiers and how there's a group of them and their approach to investing in football clubs is different than traditional owners. Who are the traditional owners at this point? I mean, we know that there are a bunch of teams that are owned basically by um, Gulf states and there's almost like a limitless uh, budget for them as a result. How did they approach their investments in the teams?
3: Yeah, I mean, so the, the the Gulf states, the Roman Abramovich, um, the Guitaris uh, at PSG, um, they've so far had a different approach. They've they've basically con- focused on one one team. Um, they've bought the best players. They've g- gone as close as they can to the regulatory limits uh, in in spending, i.e., they've spent as much as they possibly can, um, and. And they have um, been very successful on the field, which is which is um, because they've also um, most of them have brought the best coaches as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I think money alone is not enough. Um, you know, um, Man City in the early days didn't didn't do so well. It went through three or four different coaches, and then it it lighted upon Pep Guardiola, and you know now they've got both one of the best coaches and one of the best teams, and they're, they're almost unbeatable. But these state-backed teams, uh, they really don't, I mean, they don't see the need to have two or three, four teams, some you know, satellite group. Uh, although, having said that, <laughs> Manchester City actually has 10 teams. So they have chosen that as a kind of way forward, but that is more a sort of sponsorship model. There are players that go from one team to the other, um, but it's it's more a sort of um, building up a brand uh, across the globe. They don't have um, ten top teams. They have Man City, mm. and then they have in their different markets not quite such uh, you know successful teams. Um, and then you've got kind of you've got you've got some traditional owners left um, uh, in football um, who who basically you know have owned a club for uh, ever and ever and they're local business people but most of those have now been bought out either in the premier league you have um, eight fully owned uh, teams by american ownership groups um, three that have part ownership from america american groups are bidding um, are buying out italian teams they're buying they're buying french teams Um, Not so much in Spain, but, um, you know, that that Spanish clubs are now looking for equity. Uh, Americans are very interested. I mean, a few years ago, it was Chinese groups, but they've retreated.
1: He said something very interesting, and he has a good point. He said, football is in the dark ages when it comes to fan engagement. The audience is more valuable than the team. Can you expand more on that because he's got a very good point
3: yeah I mean um what Textil um feels here is that you know he's got i mean at Botafogo he's developing this um face recognition system which will enable fans to basically use their faces to get into the ground and then to buy refreshments and kit and merchandise and all, all sorts of other things and um he 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 sees You know this fan base as being very valuable in a a sort of, um, you you know, as being one that he can sell other goods to um, outside football, Um, and um, you know he's 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 got them. They're very loyal. Uh, They like buying things from Botafogo because. They think it might help the team in some way. Um, that's what he's trying to get them uh, to to buy into. Um, and and I think he you know he thinks that using the the sort of new technology um, he'll be able to do this uh, quite successfully. Um, you know we we have to see. I mean I I I must say over um, thirty or forty years I've listened a lot to uh, various owners talking about. Um, you know, how we'll kind of um, make more from our audience, make more from our fan base, you know, and all that sort of thing. Um, And in the end, they they make a little bit more, but then the player wages go up even higher. (laughs) It's still not, you know, no one's come up with the the magic uh, formula um, to make football profitable. Um, Football remains, um, you know, a very volatile business um, because, um, you know, a lot of the commercial fortune Um, varies on the success or otherwise on the pitch.
2: David, thank you so much for joining us and sharing the insights from your conversation with John Texter. Fascinating how quickly he's gone from just being, you know, a regular football fan, soccer fan to owning several big, big clubs. David Hellyer joining us with that story. And Michael Barr, I think it's fascinating how once he decided that this was his strategy, he went all out
1: yeah I mean he didn't stop and it's it amazes me and, and I we brought this up earlier 12 months 12 months you go from fan to owning multiple football clubs I, that's amazing to me. He also he also talked about as we were talking about about the face recognition how literally with the face bank fan engagement system you can join with your face. Pay for your hot dog with your face. Now they Mm -hmm. use my face. We don't know what the heck we're going to get. But it really is amazing to me the, the vision that he has from football fan to today.
2: Yeah, the idea that there's going to be uh, players that will move from uh, Molenbeek to Crystal Palace to Botafogo. I mean, they'll be developed throughout the years through the system and kind of bouncing from team to team and moving to the teams as you know the young hotshot star to the noted uh, leader on the team to perhaps the steady presence. Um, depending on where the each team is and what the payroll needs are for each team. It's, it's pretty incredible. It's a, it's almost like a closed system within the world of soccer, which is of course very fragmented around the world.
1: This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr, along with Scarlet Foo. Catch us here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, exploring the world of money and sports. And catch me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm on Twitter at Scarlet Foo. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.